Sydney Environment Institute, in partnership with Sydney Ideas, presents The Suburban Harvest, Food in Our Own Backyard, the final seminar in the 2017 Food at Sydney series, with speakers Jennifer Kent, Ananth Kapal, Laura Fisher, Brian Jones and series chair Alana Mann. My name is Alana Mann and I'm a researcher in the Sydney Environment Institute here at the University of Sydney. And this is the final for the 2017 Food at Sydney seminar series. Thank you to those people who've come to just about everyone. I see a lot of familiar faces and welcome to everyone who is here for the first time. Uh, we're in partnership with Sydney Ideas and I'd like to extend warm appreciation to Meredith who always devotes uh, a lot of time to Sydney Environment Institute activities. So thank you, Meredith Hall. Before we begin proceedings, I would like to acknowledge and pay respects to the traditional owners of the land, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, um, on whose land we meet, we do our own research and we tell our stories just as they did and continue to in many ways today. And it's a very um, important to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land in this series because that's what we're talking. We're spending a lot of time talking about land, living on the land, connections to the land. And um, tonight we're going to talk about feeding ourselves in the suburbs. So while we're having this great discussion, we've got four wonderful speakers for you tonight. I strongly encourage you to uh, tweet discreetly, hashtag food at SID, that's food A-T, SID, S-Y-D, uh, to join in the conversation. Basically, this year, we've addressed what it means to be eating our environment. We've explored food systems on campus and food systems in cities, but tonight we focus on food in our own backyards. Australian suburbs have been a site of food production for hundreds of years. This seminar aims to investigate the past, present and future for urban food producers. Who are the suburban harvesters? What do their histories tell us about the cultures and values of suburban Australia? And in an area an era of rapid social, environmental and economic change, how can suburban harvest contribute to a vision of a more just and sustainable urban food system? I think we've all heard the expression that we're nine meals from chaos or disaster. And the reason that that, um, that, that little statement continues to be true is increasing with extreme weather events like Hurricane Sandy where very, if you like, developed economies like that in New York State quickly realise that it is in fact true that you only really have three days when you have an extreme weather event before your supermarket shelves are empty. And when, where does the food come from when you've lost all of your transport networks, etc. So this is a really pertinent question and it's increasingly important to cities such as Sydney, which we would like to be sustainable and resilient in light of some of these challenges. So we have four very, very impressive speakers tonight. I will introduce you to the group before I introduce each speaker with a little bio. 
Each speaker will have 10 to 12 minutes and following each of those addresses we will have a small panel discussion and invite your questions. So if you've got a question for the first speaker you have to remember it um, until the end of all four presentations. Our speakers are Dr Jennifer Kent, Postdoctoral Research Fellow at the Sydney School of Architecture, Design and Planning here at the University of Sydney. Our second speaker is Mr Anath Gopal, Australian Centre for Environmental Research at the University of Wollongong. Our third speaker is Dr Laura Fisher, a Postdoctoral Research Fellow at the Sydney College of the Arts at the University of Sydney. And finally, our colleague Dr Brian Jones, Associate Professor at the Sydney Institute of Agriculture here again at the University of Sydney. So I'd like to thank you all for joining us tonight and I would like the audience to join me in welcoming our first speaker, Dr Jennifer Kent, to the stage. Alana and thanks everybody for coming out on this cold wintry evening. <laughs> um, all right, so I'm going to be talking about the intersections between our food systems and urban planning. Um, I'm an urban planner um, by trade and so that's sort of the position that I'm coming from. I think that food systems and food in general in the city is really important in terms of bringing people together, getting people out and about in community, providing opportunities for physical activity, as well as obviously providing opportunities for access to healthy food. But from the, what the research says, the way that we're producing and distributing food around our cities is increasingly problematic for, for many different reasons. My argument is that there's many different ways that good urban planning can actually make our food systems a lot more sustainable and a lot healthier. And I'm going to be explaining some of the ways that that, that can happen. But first of all, I want to sort of say what do we actually mean by urban planning? What do urban planners do apart from sit in the Department of Planning, planning things? So... <laughs> Urban planners can be found all over the city. Uh, we are responsible for tra transport master plans, for anything from the design of a footpath and shared pathway um, for, for a bike lane to the type of street furniture that you might see in a park to the overall distribution of uses across the city, the distribution of residential uses compared to commercial uses, where employment uses are, um, the short-term strategic planning of the city from year to year to long-term 20, 30, 40, 50 year plans and so on and so forth. Some people may have come across planners in a more, in a smaller sense in terms of when they've um, submitted a development application to their local government authority and had to deal with a duty planner or deal with a development assessment planner there. Or they may have participated in community consultation with planners, looking at strategic planning across their local government area or looking at strategic planning across the metropolitan of Sydney, of Sydney or in other regions. So that's what planners do. But as um, a famous planner said in, back in, when was it, 1973... Aaron Wodalski asked the question quite famously in, plan in planning circles, if planning is everything, then maybe it's nothing. So I think it's important at, at this point to sort of acknowledge that planning is not everything. We, we try and pull, pull agendas together and get some kind of consensus, but of course planning op operates within the neoliberal economic political circles that constrain all sorts of systems across our city. So we need to be mindful of that as well. 
But getting back to how the built environment can influence food systems and how good planning can actually bring about more sustainable and healthier food systems. There's lots of different ways and some of them you might not think are so obvious. So one thing is that good planning can make sure we have smaller scale shops and services within our communities rather than having supermarkets just located on the outskirts of suburban areas where people are forced to drive to those supermarkets. If we can zone for mixed uses within urban areas, we can provide opportunities for smaller scale retails to set up in those, those areas. Another thing that good planning can do is prevent the co-location of uses. So in some countries, not yet in Australia, we haven't quite had the oomph to be able to go ahead with this yet from a legislative perspective, but in some countries they do actually prohibit the co-location of schools and fast food outlets. This is a photo I took um, was from somewhere in the northern beaches. It was 8 o'clock in the morning, and McDonald's was absolutely chock-packed full of school kids, and I was absolutely aghast. But then I looked around, and it's, it was the only option that was open at the time. Um, one would wonder why the kids are leaving school without having breakfast in the first place, but it's a perfect opportunity for planning to step in and say, <clears throat> it's not okay to have a really unhealthy fast food multinational located right on the doorstep of a school area. Um, in the States, they've done that. In Australia, we do that here with other sorts of uses. For example, you can't locate a brothel right next door to a church. You can't locate an alcohol um, distributing venue right next door to a childcare centre. But we haven't really looked at other ways of being able to use that to encourage better access to healthier food, more appropriate food. Another thing good planning can do, and one that I'm going to be talking about more tonight, is reserve land for suburban agriculture and urban agriculture. So reserving land for community gardens and also making sure that those places operate as places of conviviality rather than places of tension. So good planning can make sure that we have enough of those spaces, that they're located um, relative to the uses that they're surrounding, they're not uh, becoming a source of tension in those neighbourhoods. Good planning, of course, can also constrain uh, urban sprawl and protect peri-urban agricultural land, something as uh, we really haven't been doing a great job of here in Sydney at the moment. Um, but in terms of preventing development out into the Sydney basin, one of the things we need to do is encourage densification within the city instead of continuously using that perfect arable land for, for housing forever sort of condemning it to that use rather than opening it up for agricultural uses. So having said all of that, one of the things that um, planning does do is regulate land use and zone land use. So um, with this sort of newfound interest, and I, I don't think it's necessarily new, but it does seem to be grabbing a lot more cultural attention of uses of suburban areas for agricultural uses. I thought it was a good time to sort of take a step back and look at this question. Why is it that we can't just grow food wherever we want to grow it in the city? There's, you know, a perfectly good piece of um, land out there on the lawn. Why can't we just set up a, a field there and, and grow a veggie patch? Um, and it's planning, I hate to say it, that actually stops us from doing that kind of stuff. So town planning originated back in the 19th century. Um, oh, that was my increased interest in suburban agricultural slide. <laughs> originated back in the 19th century, sort of out of this need to separate unhealthy uses from the... Sorry, help separate 
unhealthy polluting uses from the places where people were living. So it was a direct response to the Industrial Revolution, um, which brought with it a real upscaling of noisy, dirty, polluting uses that are all sort of associated with industrial production and the emergence of new ways to be able to distance ourselves from those uses so we could travel away from those industrial uses. Hence, we got this idea that certain parcels of land should be zoned in certain ways. Um, within each zone, certain uses could are permitted and certain uses are prohibited. So if a piece of land in Sydney, for example, this is a very simple example, is zoned commercial, it can be used for a shop, but you can't put a hospital on that piece of land. Um, while this might seem logical to us today, sort of if you were living in 18th century Manchester, you would have actually thought that it was quite a revolutionary thing to separate the place where you live from the place where you work and ensure that you weren't sort of exposed to those dirty and polluting land uses. But going back to our nice zoning table, this is what we show planners in um, first year planning. And, you know, you'd love to think being a planner that you were sitting there with, you know, gorgeous diagrams and maps and so forth, but more often than not, this is what you're faced with. This is just a zoning table which says all the different zones of, of, an, er, of an area. This is actually from Hornsby. The zones are along the top there. Down the bottom are the different uses that those zones can, can be put to, and therefore you have your pro prohibited or permissible uses. Hence, if a piece of land is... Um, zoned residential, it can't be used for a community garden because a community garden use would be prohibited on that zone. So to get that land to be used for a community garden, you'd have to have a rezoning application in or somehow convince the council that it was an ancillary use to a residential dwelling, but then we go in and in and in and it gets very confusing. I won't go too much into detail. <clears throat> so anyway, basically it's this function of planning that means we can't just grow and sell our food anywhere we like in the city. Um, instead, we have these regulations that attempt to ensure that our food-related activities occur in areas where the use of growing food is compatible to the surrounding uses. So incompatibility might relate to things like safety. For example, in some cities, it's prohibited to locate a community garden next to a major traffic-generating road because of the exposure to lead in the air. Um, or other sort of um, polluting uses. Um, but, and also, in some areas, it might mean that you can't um, sell produce on a roadside where that sale of produce would generate a lot of traffic. They're two fairly obvious examples, but problems arise, as you can imagine, where definitions of what is safe and what is amenity differ from person to person. So, for example, does a verge that's planted out with a pumpkin um, vine represents sort of something of beauty, conviviality, food producing, or is it a, a real blight on the neighbourhood because your next door neighbour wants the, the nature strip to be nicely mown and kept very neat? It's all a matter of definition and interpretation and a sense of subjectivity. Should a locality embrace a roadside stall, even though it does generate a lot of traffic and it may generate some parking issues, because having a roadside stall is something that can make a convivial community? So town planners attempt to grapple with these issues by developing new policies. For example, we have some local governments areas, progressive ones in Sydney, that have community garden and urban agricultural policies. 
Um, and also by just responding to changing demands by assessing applications as they come through on a case-by-case -case basis. Of course, in a city that's growing as rapidly as, as Sydney is and that's densifying as rapidly as Sydney is and with this increased interest in suburban agriculture, it's not any wonder that local planning authorities are having trouble keeping up with some of the regulations that are surrounding suburban agriculture at the moment. Um, what I think is this struggle is related to is the fact that our local authorities are really failing to see that they have much of a role for sustainable and healthy food production in the city. They kind of don't see that within their remit yet. I've been doing a lot of work with local government authorities on the idea of making health an urban planning issue, health an issue that local government authorities need to be interested in beyond sort of the environmental health remit of making sure food preparation premises are clean and so forth. Um, and local government authorities seem to be getting it that they do have a role to play in certain aspects of health. So, so for example, um, making sure that people have bike paths and recreational areas so that they can be physically active or having community spaces for community connection and so forth. But when you present to them this idea that local government authorities have a role in food production, they sort of take a step back and don't see that that's so much within their remit. An example of this is some research that was done, it was commissioned by the Premier's Council for Active Living, who looked at what are called community strategic plans, which are sort of big vision documents about what a local government authority thinks that their community wants to see in that particular area. And this uh, consultant went through and looked at all the different types of health mentions within these plans. There was a lot of mention of physical activity, as you can see from the graph there, a lot of mention of this idea of community conviviality or community connection, but food rarely rated a mention. It, it really went under the radar. And to me, this is just indicative that we're yet to really tap into this rich resource of this idea that urban planning can really make a difference when it comes to enabling environments for sustainable and healthy food production, but that it takes a bit of awareness raising at the local government level. And I'll leave you with that and pass back to Alana. Thank you. Thanks, Jennifer. That was an excellent introduction to our panel. And I would like to thank Jennifer very much. Uh, despite her, her modesty, she actually is one of the leading urban planning scholars in Australia, especially for that unique combination of focus on transport, health and planning. So we're so grateful that she is here to share her work, which has been used to inform policy development in New South Wales and Australia, including a plan for growing Sydney. So it's great they've got you there. So thank you. So our second speaker for tonight, I'm delighted to welcome Anath Gopal from the University of Wollongong. Anath is an actor and a geographer. You're a social network actor or a real actor? You're a real actor. <laughs> uh, and he teaches cultural geography at University of Melbourne as well as Wollongong. And he is studying a doctorate as part of a, an ARC project, a research council project, entitled Sustainability and Climate Change Adaptation, Unlocking the Potential for, of Ethnic Diversity. 
His work focuses on the household and local neighbourhood scale. Specifically, he's exploring the diverse food, gardening and growing practices of three generations of ethnic minority migrants in the Illawarra and is more broadly interested in the emergent ecological knowledge that germinates from innocuous places and practices. So please join me in welcoming Anna. up since when I first came in here. Uh, thank you everybody for, for coming today and um, I, I want to pause again uh, and, I knew, and I know that we paused at the start in order to acknowledge country and I just want to do that again because the stories that I'm about to share with you are stories of country. It may not be this Australian country but they're stories of Indigenous people from another place who have uh, forced uh, to move and leave their country and the story that I want to share with you tonight is how they uh, seek to make themselves at home and put down some roots in Australia. So I want to introduce you to the Kareni people. Often they're confused with Karen and they're often confused with Burmese in general. So just as a bit of a disambiguation, uh, the Kareni people uh, live in between uh, the Thai-Burma border and the border sort of cleaved their homeland in two. And ever since the 40s, there's been a series of civil unrest uh, spiking into civil war. And what's happened is we've had 266,000 Karenis, Kaya, um, Kachin and Karen people gathering in a series of ref refugee camps on the Thai-Burma border. And this, the particular refugee camp that I want to take your attention to is Mei Hung Sun. Mei Hung Sun has 10,000 people, and most of those people are Kareni. And the story that I want to uh, take you on is the story of about 400 Karenis who have come to Australia, and there are about 45 families in Wollongong. So my research looks at the families, the Kareni families in Wollongong, and tracks through their growing, their food growing and food gathering practices. So I've often asked from Melbourne, where's Wollongong? And I have the kind of, I kind of have to go, you know, Wollongong, it's south of Sydney. So there you go, Sydney siders. Wollongong is just an appendix to Sydney. But it is an appendix that is 70 kilometres south of here. And it is on a train line. And when you come to Wollongong, you'll realise that it doesn't look like Mei Hong Sun. But when you come to Coniston, if you look at this picture of the suburb of Coniston and you flick back to the picture of Mei Hong Sun, you go, you know what? Different building materials, different planning regulations, sort of similar thing. So Mei Hong Sun, um, 10,000 people seeking refuge in this refugee camp. Uh, the average duration of um, a person living in this refugee camp is about 15 years. A few of the participants, so the three of the stories that I want to share with you tonight, uh, have lived there for 24 years. They described it to me, so Sume described it to me as a prison where your wings are cut. Her monthly rations, 25 kilos of rice, one litre of vegetable oil, 200 grams of soap. That's not a lot. It's not a lot of food. So what do you do when you have so little? Well, you get creative and you start trading on social capital, 
and you start building networks so that you can survive to start off with and on a good day thrive. And how do they do that? They supplemented it through intensive urban agriculture. We don't often think of intensive urban agriculture as germinating from places like Meihongsun, but what I want to share with you is that they do, and Coniston has something to learn from it. So Coniston, where is Coniston? Well, it's two stops after Wollongong. It goes Wollongong, Unidera, Dapto, Coniston. Coniston has one of the highest unemployment rates in the state. And if anyone is familiar with the geography of Wollongong, you'll know that it has a great big steelworks. And that great big steelworks has attracted migrants um, and refugees from the 40s. So let's zoom in on this particular suburb. For some reason, I can't quite work it out, and it's, I think it's some quirk of the resettlement process, Coniston has 45 Kareni families out of 50, and it makes my job very easy for interviews. So I can just go with um, my community co-researcher, Emu, and I'll explain what that means in a moment. And I can, I've had the pleasure of seeing firsthand how these communities grow food and gather food. And I want to, as, as a way of... Um, Jennifer's talk kind of reminded me of the, the way legislation really has an impact. Tenancy regulations has such a profound impact on what people can and can't do. But I'll come to that in a moment. So the way in which I want to structure the next 10 minutes or 8 minutes, whatever I've got left in the tank, is I want to take you through three sites. One I'm calling small, which is a backyard. Two, I'm calling medium, which is a kind of community, family, allotment-style garden. And three, which is what I'm calling large, but it's definitely not large in the industrial sense, it's a 13-acre um, community-supported agricultural farm. Okay. So the methods that I used um, were mostly... I'm going to skip through the academic jargon and go straight to... I spent 18 months with Emu. Emu is the young man, and my face is thankfully obscured there. Um, Emu and I spent 18 months together and what we did is I said to him, look, I'll train you in the basics of research, whatever that is, um, and you train me in the basics of how do I deal with the stories in your community and how can I work with you sensitively. So Emu taught me and I taught Emu and we've become friends as a result of that. So that's what... Um, this research is really built on. It's built on a relationship between myself and Emu and Emu and his community. And he's lived with much of this community both in Coniston and also in the refugee camp in Meihongsun. So one of the ideas, I just want to step us back um, onto the balcony, the conceptual balcony, before we get into the sites, is an idea of knowledge. Who knows what and what is valuable to know? Often in Australia, we sort of unintentionally or intentionally bifurcate environmental knowledge into two tra traditions. One, white fella. Two, black fella. And there's not much room for brown fellas like me. So what we want to do is try to go, okay, there are these sort of units of knowledge that we've come to think of in Australia as indigenous and scientific Western. 
But what I want to do is bring a little bit more colour to it and to pluralise what knowledge of the environment or ecological knowledge could be. So ecological knowledge, as far as Tim Ingold and I def um, define it, is ecological knowledge, however um, acquired, refers to the relationships. It refers to the relationships of living beings with one another and with their environment. So what I want to explore is what kinds of knowledge germinate through the relationships struck between people from a different place who are making their home in Wollongong, Australia. So I want to take you to the first site, Nime's Garden. Now, Nime has been in Australia for four years. She doesn't speak uh, fluent English, but she's fluent in three other languages, which makes her a lot more multilingual than I. So Nime, in an interview, said to me, in response to the question, Nime, what do you think about the environment here? What, how does it feel to grow food in your backyard? And her brow sort of narrowed, and she goes, my husband Mere, he's not planting things in our garden. He, he is not close to the environment, but I am. Every morning, I go out and I plant taplebu, tapleri, which is types of spinach from... Uh, Kareni state. And every morning I go out and I water my garden. And when I do that, I'm in the environment. And I said to her, well, what's so special about growing your own food? What's so great about it? And she said, well, the only thing that I have to buy is onions, but everything else I can grow, so it saves me money. So that's a very basic economic imperative. And then she said to me, and this is off the quote, after the lemongrass uh, experience, she said to me, I just feel good knowing that I can feed myself. And more importantly, she feels good that she can feed herself things that make her happy, things that remind her of back home. But it's not just a reminder in terms of a memory, but it's something right here, right now. The taste of home in Coniston. So... What Nime has to, what does she have to do in order to get around tenancy regulations, in order to get around the legislative framework that she's lumped with or has the pleasure of having? It depends which way you want to look at it. So what Nime does is she grows lemongrass in eskies. And what Nime does is she grows food because her real estate agent told her, you cannot take any lawn out. So all you can do, Nime, is to grow food on the edges of your garden. So she said, OK, I'll put a tamarind tree in a master food tub. And I said, why have you done that? Because you never know where I have to go next. Point taken, Nime. And I put all the spinach down the side so that when I get moved on, I can just turn it over. And she had to turn it over two months ago I met with Nime again, and she had tears in her eyes, and she said, I said, Nime, how's the garden going? And she said, not good. I've had to leave. All my spinach couldn't come to harvest. But she's not crying over it for too long, because, luckily, in this story, there's site number two. It's a medium-scale site. So the Sanctuary's um, parish school. What's happening here? 
I'll take you back over here. So in between two schools, um, there's Tiggs, which is the Illawarra Grammar School, which is fancy, and there's St. Therese Parish School, which is moderately fancy. And there is a steep slope that slopes into a creek. SCARF, which is a refugee resettlement organisation in the Illawarra, with the multicultural community network in the Illawarra, asked the Karenni community, what do you want? What would you like in order to feel more connected here? And they said, we want to grow food. So they gave them a, a, an impossibly steep slope and said, here's this bit at the back of the basketball courts at St. Therese Primary School. See what you can do with it. And they said, bonza. Maybe they probably didn't say Ponza, but they said <laughs> terraced gardens. <laughs> so, these terraced gardens, and I've spent some weekends there um, hoeing uh, beds on these very steep clay slopes. And what they're able to do is terrace food, food gardens, in exactly the same way as they did back home and make them fit for purpose in West Wollongong. So what, what, we've, what we've got here is we've got seven Kareni families supported by NGOs, nothing to do with the government, and supported to grow traditional foods, supported to enact traditional farming practices using their ecological knowledge, but not just having it as a, as a relic or, uh, or an heirloom piece, but actually mobilising that knowledge in order to experiment, in order to prototype new ways of growing old food in this place. So Francis said to me, well, what we do is we do crop trials, we do water trials, and we, all, we only use chemical-free fertilisers. So what we've got is a medium-scale prototype for how marginal or liminal land can be used by people. It, it so happens that refugee or former refugee communities who are considered marginal are actually making a real fist of it. So I, I, I want to pause for a moment because the voices in this research uh, stand out to me the most. Um, I spent a, a Saturday with Francis, one of, the, one of the members of this particular community garden, and, and he kind of looked me with quite a, a fierce gaze and he said, I've never brought fruits, but coming to Australia, I have to spend a lot of money to buy vegetables and fruits. That is a strange feeling to me. You know that? It, there's a certain kind of strangeness from nature. No? That, that I'm eating the fruit, but that I do not see it. That I do not see where it has grown. And he was philosophically incredulous. And the, the, the force of his emotion made me go, oh yeah, it is strange. It is really weird that I put things into my mouth, which is a very intimate act, and I have zero idea where they're from or who grew it. I must be very trusting, like you. So, in order to tackle the lack of intimacy in our food system, in order to tackle unsustainable unemployment, and in order to tackle what's called unfair food, food that screws our planet in ways that is not tenable, Green Connect has come along and said, give us the back of this school, and this school is called the Warrawong High School. Warrawong High School, um, similarly, high rates of unemployment, high rates of uh, systemic underprivilege. At the back of the school, there's 13 acres of 
tailings from BHP. For decades, BHP has been not tipping sort of fully toxic uh, stuff, but somewhat toxic stuff. And three years ago, this land became available for a Hooray Hazar community garden. But they're actually really hard work, especially when you've got 13 acres of lantana and blackberry on fairly contaminated soil. So what do you do? You don't grow food in that soil, you build up. So over the last five years, the folks at Green Connect who hire refugees, former refugees and young people exclusively in order to provide fast-tracked employment pathways have said, we'll we'll rehabilitate this land, we'll make it not only fit for growing food and we'll test it assiduously, we'll also um, create jobs and transform what marginal liminal spaces can do. So what's happened is last year they grew 314 tonnes of food. Two-thirds of the farm management are Kareni former refugees. And 50 to 70 families, and mine is one of them, gets to eat delicious food every week as part of their community-supported agricultural enterprise. So what happens when we get close to our food? And what happens when we pay attention to to the diversity of knowledge, traditions already here in our community in Australia. Well, you get what Sume sternly calls, well, when we eat the banana, we must know the banana tree. We must know how to plant, how to grow, how to help the banana coming out. We must understand what we are eating, where they are from. Some people, they doesn't know. They only know to go to the shop. It's easy. They throw it, easy one. They don't know how to grow it. So Sume now is a homeowner, and one of the farm managers at Green Connect. And Sume grows my food. And Emu grows my food. And Sere grows my food. And I want to introduce you to Antonio, which is an adaptive idea that came from Sume and Emu. The farm manager, Callum, wanted to introduce pigs into this permaculture regenerative agricultural system. But he didn't know what to feed them on site. And he was on Google and reading Bill Mollison and reading all the various gurus in that world. And finally, Sume said to him, you know, at Mei Hong Sun, what we did is we got the banana, we chopped the stem, we boiled it, and we mixed it with old rice and we fed it to the pigs. And Callum said, nah, it's not going to have enough protein. It did It had enough protein. We did a content analysis of banana stem mixed with rice and vegetables, and now we've got pigs into the urban agricultural system in Warrawong, just south of Coniston. So this is just little vignette examples of what's possible when we say, go for it, and actually show us what you've got in terms of what you can do in a backyard, what you can do on a crappy slope with really poor soil that's hardly friable and what you can do on 13 acres of blackberry and lantana. Well, what you can do, ask these guys because Emu, Sume, Sere and Memo, they grow their food 
not only for their community, but they also grow it for me, they grow it for the Novotel Hotel, they grow it for the council, for people at the steelworks. And so when we broaden what we think of as a farmer, and when we open our mind to who can grow our food, and when we open our geographic imagining to where can we grow our food, we can answer, well, who grows our food? We do. Where do we grow it? Well, we grow it where we call home. And how do we learn to do this? Well, we make relationships with each other through the environment. And that is a form of ecological knowledge that can mobilise communities to tackle the major structural challenges right here, right now. Thank you. That was a very powerful story and a wonderful piece of research. Thank you. Beautiful presentation too. And you really, it does, really does make you think about food from nowhere, doesn't it? And how we, the food system's so big we only see one part of it. So thank you for showing us a, a beautiful example of a group of people in the whole food chain. So our third speaker is Laura Fisher. Laura is a postdoctoral research fellow at the Sydney College of the Arts here at the University of Sydney. Her writing explores environmentalism through socially engaged art, urban cycling and land use cultures, Australian Indigenous art and cross-cultural encounters. Laura's current work marries social research and collaborative creative practice and concerns the role that artists play in bridging the rural-urban divide on a global scale. She's exploring several projects responding to rural depopulation, environmental degradation, food economies and conflicts over land use. So please join me in welcoming Laura. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I forgot my title slide, it's always that <laughs> one you overlook. Um, and before I do my preamble, I'll just explain what I have here is Glenn Morris, who's a farmer from Inverell, and last year um, he rode his horse across the Harbour Bridge, and it was really a, a plea to uh, be part of the debate that we have about environmentalism, um, and in this case specifically uh, about the land clearing laws. So we recently relaxed our land clearing laws um, in federal legislation to permit farmers to have more leeway to, to get rid of forest on their land. Um, and this image of, of the farmer on his horse on the Harbour Bridge um, coming into the city uh, to, to just do a stunt to, to get our attention is sort of symbolic of, of what I'm going to talk about today. Um, which I suppose I'm thinking a bit about the future of urban agriculture and how we can link the urban uh, agricultural movement or these wonderful um, sort of energetic, energetic and optimistic movements uh, to bring food production into the city, how we can actually link them to remarkable farmers like Glenn uh, who are out there in rural places which, where we'd never go uh, share the same values um, and are actually doing it uh, doing regenerative agriculture in a way that may actually change the food system in a holistic way. So, um, as Alana said, a lot of my research is around how we change our relationship to land and how we can address the environmental crisis that we face through different ways that we think about land resources and make use of land resources. 
And the rural-urban divide is something that I'm just preoccupied by because I think um, if we look at how urbanised a society we, are, we have, where 90% of us are in cities and we have 120,000 farmers in Australia that could really fill a couple of office blocks in, in Sydney and how little dialogue we actually have, um, I think that's, there are some really big obstacles that we need to overcome there. And... I think that there's a lot of promise in the way that art um, and just thinking about the sort of cultural imaginary or, or different narratives that we can create that start to mingle rural, rural and urban communities who have shared values. And so in the last um, couple of years I've done uh, quite a few field trips and interviews with farmers who I think are real pioneers um, and real innovators and collaborating with other artists. And I have a, actually a stack of newspapers here um, about an event I was involved in last year with other artists. So if anyone's interested um, in, in how art and farming can, can be part of the same story, please take one. So I'm going to talk about not urban farming, but um, regenerative agriculture. And uh, to really take advantage of this sort of scenario where I think we'd have a lot of people who would be receptive to, to these inspiring um, activities that these farmers practice uh, to, to sort of be a letter from the other side um, and partly because what I've learned from people like Glenn and the, the other farmers I've met is that they're so frustrated by being sort of stereotyped, um, by being sort of imagined from the point of view of the city as, as um, that Barnaby Joyce and the Nationals sort of represent how, how farmers see the world um, when there's actually immense diversity and a very strong environmentalism um, uh, ethic amongst farmers. So, um, and the second reason that I wanted to talk about this is that I, I think um, there's so much opportunity with urban farming to, to open up these, these sort of bridges with where our food comes from. So um, I think rather than the risk of, of urban farming sometimes ending up being a little niche a little oasis in the city, a place of respite um, from this, this urban sort of jung jungle and the, and the desert that the, the city can be, that we need to use urban farming and these wonderful movements that are evolving as a, as a way to get us to think about the food system holistically and the way that we're part of the food system in the way that we shop and the way that we eat. Um, so I'm going to run through a couple of these, of these amazing people. Uh, so Glenn, uh, Glenn is both, well, he's a passionate advocate um, on climate change and also someone who, who feels that rather than just waiting for our politicians um, and sort of advocating in the political sphere, that there's great leadership, actually, that we can uh, look to within farming itself. And I was so interested to hear you talk about the bifurcation of our conversations about ecology, because I... Um, think about that a lot about environmentalism, environmentalist knowledge, knowledge that's about conservation, wildlife, and knowledge about farming. And I worry about the way we divide ecological knowledge in that way. Um, and someone like Glenn knows that the working landscapes of the farm, and this, this takes up 60% of Australia's land mass, is, is land stewarded by farmers. And there's so much potential for that land to be changed um, to sequester carbon efficiently, to, to remediate land, to, to look at um, climate uh, tolerance, 
to floods and to, to, to droughts and things like that. So that's where he really operates. So he is an organic farmer of cattle and um, uh, pigs and he has a very efficient pasture um, method that is really about linking the land to the climate cycle and the, and the carbon cycle. I'm going to move through quickly, but um, oh, I've lost my picture of Stuart. How strange. <laughs> there we go. Um, so Stuart Andrews is the son of Peter Andrews, who uh, devised a method called natural sequence farming. And um, I should say, you know, permaculture is an amazing Australian innovation. Many of you might know that, as is natural sequence farming. And they're just two kinds of Australian innovations in farming that we have amazing heritage in this country um, for sustainable models of agriculture. But the point about natural sequence farming is that um, it really acknowledges that Australia was never a place of deep rivers, big river systems. It was um, our whole continent, its geology uh, and its, the way it's, that water is distributed was more about floodplains and wetlands. It was far more flat. Um, and our farming methods over the years have produced this sort of erosion, deep eroded creeks that send the water rushing through after a flood and we end up with this loss of, of topsoil um, and natural sequence farming is all about interrupting that flow of water to reconnect the water to the floodplains and eventually this image on the right shows a, a what used to be like that actually remediated through vegetation. Um, Bruce Pascoe, some of you might know, is a, an amazing Aboriginal historian and, um, and a farmer. And he is looking at, um, and here we were talking about country, this, the ag agriculture was really the frontier um, and that dispossession of land for Aboriginal people was also about removing managed landscapes, Aboriginal managed landscapes, uh, in which they weren't exclusively foraging and hunting and gathering, but they were actually cultivating food. So Bruce is really leading the way in trying to trial how Aboriginal foods like a murnong, which is a kind of yam, a sweet potato, um, as well as grains. This is him grinding millet, a native millet, and thinking about how we can reintroduce native species that were um, once part of the, a sort of staple diet uh, in the southeast of Australia, how we can bring them back into the food system. This is very strange. My slides have <laughs> deleted my photos. Um, the living classroom, which is for some reason up in this tiny <laughs> image up there. So the living classroom, uh, our art co cooperative visited, KSCA visited recently, <clears throat> uh, is in Bingara. So this is in the New England region. And it's 150 hectares of land. It was a town commons. Um, and this is a remarkable, thinking about planning, actually the council coming on board and supporting the transition of a, a, town, a really disused town commons uh, into a, a, a regenerative agriculture hub. And uh, there's a whole community of farmers in this region working closely with the living classroom to support each other to make this transition to regenerative agriculture. So for those of you, um, the, the term regenerative agriculture is really an umbrella term for anyone who's actually trying to farm without the use of chemicals, but actually to 
work back with the, um, the biological processes that, that nature has, that we know function in forests um, where you have decomposition of life and then regrowth and, and photosynthesis in connection with a whole lot of the microorganisms in the soil actually produce the fertility and the nutrition that we rely on in our food. And industrial agriculture has really either killed off a lot of those processes or suppresses them. So there's a huge re-education process going on amongst this kind of community. And I attended a carbon farming workshop um, at the Living Classroom a couple of months ago. It was a room full of farmers. This man, Jeff Bassett, who's a, an educator and sort of leading some of these farmers to change, they were farmers who had reached a point on their land where um, the fertility that they knew had been there from their parents' and grandparents' generation was not there. They were sort of hammering their um, spades into compacted soil and spending lots of money on various products that were really not alleviating the problem. Um, and at this workshop, I heard story after story of transformation where they'd really learnt about um, sort of re restarting that soil biology and, and changing their, their methods. Um, Tim Wright. So Tim Wright is actually the nephew of Judith Wright. Some of you might know the poet who um, was an amazing environmentalist and helped to save the Great Barrier Reef at one point. Uh, so he comes from a, a real environmentalist family and he practices holistic management, which is about moving uh, your cattle and you can do this with pigs, with, cat, um, with chickens... Uh, any grazing animal and you move them from one very small paddock to another leaving that paddock to rest um, which is exactly how the wild animals in the past the bison, the wildebeest, all the grazing animals in the wild would move across the landscape eat it up very quickly, manure it and move on and that, that process of pasture and of, of grass regenerating is very efficient as a carbon sequestration um, process. So uh, you can see in that picture up there his little tiny cells and all he does is move his cattle within these small um, cells and it's, he's alone on an enormous property. A very efficient method. So, and finally Simon Matson. So Simon Matson has to be working in the hardest uh, industry in terms of embracing environmentally sustainable principles um, the sugarcane industry in Mackay. And this is, of course, your exemplary monoculture um, where it's highly centralised industry and a lot of these farmers have got terrible soils now. We're sort of... They're really depleted and there's obviously so much erosion, if any of you have heard, with the politics around the Great Barrier Reef, uh, the amount that the chemical runoff from the sugarcane farming and just the sediment from erosion enters the reef, stops the coral from being able to photosynthesise um, and generally encourages all sorts of uh, growth of, of little organisms that do damage to the reef. Simon is trying to reintroduce a polyculture, right? Monocultures are never created in nature. Um, plants want diverse communities of other plants around them and he's working with multi-species cropping, including sunflowers, to try to create that diversity of biological life both in the soil and above it. Um, and he's working with artists, uh, Lucas Eileen and Kim Williams, around this aesthetic of the sunflowers, the sort of powerful cultural imagery 
of the sunflowers and how that can bring um, communities to the land, new communities to the land to be interested. So how, how am I going for time, Lana? Two minutes, OK. So I, you know, here I am talking about um, farmers in, in an urban farming context and not really talking about the fantastic urban farming projects, which I also know a lot about, because I thought that this was an opportunity um, to kind of... Because I would really hope that a lot of the conversations we have about farming uh, have, have, the element, have a farming voice or have a, a farming perspective in them, because it's really about breaking through a lot of the stereotypes, as I said before, um, and I think it reminds us that these people, if these people succeed in the work they're doing, and they have these sort of clandestine grassroots communities around them, some of them, Tim, you know, we, we hear stories about agribusiness saying threatening things, and um, the farmers, sort of, one farmer in Mackay talked about how secretive he was about the changes he'd made because um, he was concerned about the, the backlash from due to, due to the fact that they're not using the chemicals anymore. Um, they're, they're dealing with really complicated issues that are because of the scale of our food system, the way it has to be so centralised and um, so industrialised that it's really hard work to... to uh, to make these kinds of changes and yet they're making the kinds of changes that I imagine most people in this room would, would we all wish that they would do that they're um, looking at uh, the sustainability of the environment they're protecting biodiversity um, they're, they're trying to think long term about uh, the health of land uh, and so if we're really genuine I suppose is what I'm trying to say if we're really genuine about changing what is a dysfunctional food system then we need to create platforms for these people um, to, to be part of our conversations um, and think that if they actually get the momentum that they need, then we're talking about the bigger food system actually going through the changes that it needs. Um, and so I would really love to see people like Simon and, and Stuart and, and Glenn come to some of to places like 107 Projects or um, to, to come to City Farm and be able to share their knowledge because they have so much knowledge to share um, and they would love an audience in the, in the city. And I'll leave it there. Thanks. Thanks, Laura. That was beautiful and really important because we know that urban agriculture is not going to feed the world. That is one thing. We're not, try we're not trying to say that. Who knows? In the future, I might regret saying that. But... Our farmers, we have a lot to thank them for and those urban rural connections are so important. So thanks, Laurie, did, did put a human face on that really beautifully. Now, Brian Jones is from the Department of Agriculture at the University of Sydney. He did a PhD in plant molecular genetics and spent a lot of time in Europe. However, we've got him back, thankfully. I think of him as our little social scientist in the ag department. No, 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 he's shaking his I don't want to get him in trouble. Um, he continues to work on improving yield capacity in crop species through the application of molecular genetics, but having recognised that it makes little sense to incrementally improve yield capacity while wasting up to 40% of the food that we currently produce, 
He is now also investigating the contribution that urban food production and food waste minimisation can have on the sustainability of the food system. So please welcome Brian Jones. Thanks very much, Elena, and thanks for coming out tonight, everybody. So I am possibly coming at it from the same direction in some ways as the other three and in, other, in another direction. Um, I, my history is that I grew vegetables in my backyard since I was four years old, and so always wanted to do that, went off and did other things, but came back when I did my undergraduate degree in horticulture. It was sort of still possible for to, to start a small farm and start a small business. Um, but when I came back to, to teaching uh, horticulture here at Sydney, um, the narrative for our students was this is a great time to do horticulture and agriculture because agribusiness has lots of jobs for you. And so that's great, and I'm not complaining about it. Our students get some of them very, very highly paid jobs uh, in agriculture, in corporate agriculture. But I know we have lots and lots of other students who would rather go out, who've come to the degree, have come to learn about growing food um, from the perspective that they'd like to actually go out, go out and start their own business. So for me, um, urban agriculture seems like a great idea for some of those, those who would like to stay in agriculture and start their own businesses and be farmers. Uh, and ag urban agriculture in particular, because I had a student just the other day say to me that... Um, that she really wants to do farming, she really wants to be a farmer, but she's a city girl and she wants to stay in the city. So she wants to be able to be a farmer and I want her to be able to be a farmer, but she wants to stay in the city and do it. And so urban agriculture seems like, for those sorts of students, a really good pathway. And so at the moment, they're coming out of the woodwork um, here on campus because there are people in engineering, there are people in agriculture, there are people in the social sciences that are getting this vibe that you've talked about, this we want to be able to produce food, we want to know where our food comes from, we want to do this thing called agriculture. So it's a slightly different perspective. I always talk longer than I'm supposed to, so I'm going to go through this rather quickly. But So what I'm going to talk about is a story that you all know but I'll try and get back to the urban agriculture story. So mainstream agriculture operates now. One of the beautiful things that I always tell students about horticulture, and there's one of my students there, she would have seen this slide earlier this semester. Um, one of the beautiful things about Australia is we have this from the tropics to the cold temperate climates. So we do have regions all over Australia where we grow where we can grow lots of different sorts of produce really, really well. So that's great. We can do that. Bundaberg up in Sydney, we, up in Queensland, grows a lot of beautiful produce because we have beautiful soils, lots of rainfall, great conditions. And so conventional horticulture has utilised that, and, but it transports that produce, of course, down to, to Sydney and across to Perth from Bundaberg, and it seems rather ridiculous in many ways but rather sensible, given that the climate in, and the conditions in Bundaberg 
are quite good. But I have talked to growers that grow up in Bundaberg, truck it down to Melbourne to pack it and then truck it back up to Sydney. Now that's starting to get beyond the pale as far as I'm concerned. I've also talked to growers or marketers in the US one time and they treat the world like that. So that map of the world on the bottom there are the shipping road network lanes for perishable produce. And so someone in the US thinks of something grown in some province in China as being, yep, as long as I can make the deal and make money out of it, that's no problem. So we have got this system at the moment that's based on long-distance transport, not knowing where it comes from, um, but things being grown where we've got the conditions and the, to be able to grow them. So one of the consequences of that sort of system is it's about production, 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 production. Production, in Australia we do the same thing. The Australian Bureau of Statistics each year looks at how much we produce, you know, can we produce more? The Hort Innovation Australia, which is one of the um, industry bodies, looks at production. Are we being successful in our horticulture? What are our numbers? It's numbers, production, numbers, production, etc. It's about money, largely. So all that means that production generally means a larger scale, but we still do have over 85,000 agricultural businesses in Australia, so it's not all large production. We still do have the capacity for small producers to produce stuff and deliver it to market. So it's not complete corporate large-scale ownership. But there is a trend towards um, the industrialisation of production. And so we do a lot of that here at the University of Sydney. For example, I don't know if there's anyone in the audience from engineering here, but they are University of Sydney robots that we, we control robot there is from the engineering school here. Those cattle with the virtual fences around their necks. So basically, that gives them a, 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 an audio warning that they're getting to the boundary of the paddock and then they go, no, 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 I don't care about that and keep walking, it'll give them a little electric shock. So, that, um, the drones, the robots, the protected cropping are all about scale and efficiencies. And efficiency basically means reducing labour inputs, industrial agriculture. That farm there, there are, for me, some interesting things about it. That farm there on the bottom right, Sundrop Farms, I don't know if you've heard about that, but it's 20 hectares of tomato production. I think it produces something like uh, 10 or 20% of Australia's tomatoes from that one farm, 15 million kilos of tomatoes from that one farm. They use seawater, they use um, solar thermal power to desalinate the seawater and to heat the glass houses. So there are some environmental credentials with that, but they do have robotic stuff inside to reduce labour. Uh, and etc. That is really high-tech, high-intensive industrial agriculture. Why is there this emphasis on this scale and efficiency? One of the reasons for that emphasis is because the graph on the right there looks at from the 1930s up to 2010 how much 
the US, in the US at least, uh, people are spending as a percentage of their income on food. So it's gone from 24% down to, a few years ago, 9.5%. In the map on the left-hand side, you'll see that Australia, a few years ago, was at 10.5% too. So, if we're not spending as much money on our food, if we want cheap food, the consequences are the previous slide. But it's not just because we, as consumers, are not spending as much it's also because there's this little thing called the corporatisation of agriculture. And so one, one example of that is Australia's leading horticultural producer, <coughs> Costas, announced a 485% increase in profits after they listed on the Australian Stock Exchange. So you become a public company and your profits go through the roof because you need to produce profits for shareholders and etc. etc. So we're spending less of our income, food becomes, is less important to us apparently, or we've spent our money on houses and etc. and we can't afford to spend more. And when the corporates take over, they've got a duty to return profits to their shareholders, so we'll reduce costs. You know this story. So technology is replacing labour throughout the countryside. And so that's an Australian invention there on the right-hand side. That's the robotic dairy. Australian invention being sold around the world. Not such a great job at 5 o'clock in the morning, I suppose, but it is labour, and dairy farmers clearly love their job. But robotic dairies are one solution to this problem here. If we want to pay a dollar a litre for milk, then we need scale, we need efficiency in order to make a profit to be able to keep our farms. And we also need to be able to be large enough, like Godzilla on the right, to be able to deal with the King Kong that sells dollar a litre milk. We need power with power. We need producers to be large enough so that they can be price makers or at least that they can negotiate with the larger companies. So that's the way the system works at the moment. It's not fun, it's not funny, but it does give lots of jobs for our graduates. Another way it can work is the small scale. And that's what I'm trying to promote now through some of the work that we're doing here at the uni um, and the way that I can see my students being able to get into this growing business themselves rather than... Um, get a job with a large corporate and that we can start to change the food system. The two people on the left here are shining examples of that. They're two graduates of the faculty that um, fell in love and started a farm together up in Blackheath and have now bought their own property up there and are farming successfully, have been farming successfully uh, as a small business for three or four or five years now. Um, and other farms on the other side. Small scale. And the difference between these people and the others that you see is they don't have a duty to shareholders um, and that their stated goal is to increase production. If they increase production, they can have more time off, more time to themselves rather than more profit. But they've also said they are trying to pay down their debt. So they need to make a profit. So we need to find ways to be up in order for 
young people to be able to start a business growing farms. Now, it doesn't need to be a business. It can be a community. I'm like, clearly, if they're a CSA, they're a business as well. Um, <clears throat> but we need to be able to find ways of these people creating sustainable enterprises and feeding themselves, their neighbours and everyone else around Sydney. So for me, one of the answers to that is technology. Uh, so we're working on some technologies here. So the technologies, um, and I'll talk about that as we go in a minute. So in agriculture, those of you who've worked in agriculture know that there are two constants, decision making and taking actions based on the decisions. So every day it's problem solving. So technology can support problem solving. One of the things that we've got is community garden here in, on campus and it's great People love working there, but there's a lot of people that don't have the skills. Farmers, clearly those who have been in the industry, those who have grown up with it, or those that have been in the industry for years, can make those decisions really easily in some cases. But technology can help young people, people starting out to make decisions. And we certainly don't want our young people who have come through here or starting other farming businesses to go back to, um, well, I don't want anyway, them to, to, to deny the technologies that are out there, that, that their competition, if, we're, if they're trying to get their produce into the markets in Sydney, I don't want them to be um, at a disadvantage because their competition, the large-scale producers, have access to technologies for decision support technologies. So there's a lots and lots and lots of um, environmental monitors and etc that are able to help. Now, so the beautiful thing is that those large-scale expensive technologies that conventional farmers, conventional farmers are using now are becoming available. There's lots and lots of people working on um, uh, open source softwares that young producers and uh, small producers can use. There's Things like the in the US-based National Young Farmers Coalition Farm Hack that has a web presence that talks to a community of small producers to develop appropriate technologies for their businesses and etc. etc. Lots and lots and lots of stuff available so that this precision agriculture that large farmers have got access to becomes democratised, becomes smaller scale, becomes affordable and so that they can use it to make their business successful. Those things are things like we, this on the left-hand side there at the bottom, um, we tried to make a device out of Raspberry Pis. So these are just little microcomputers, cost less than $50. Um, fully functional, very powerful microcomputer for less than $50. Can do a lot of things this semester. We'll make semester, we were making one of them to monitor plant growth. And we made it for less than $100, but we could probably make it cheaper than that. So put those sorts of technologies in the hands of young farms, I think is a valuable thing to do, similar Arduinos, um, printers and etc. I've been over to Japan recently, talking to people over there who are making um, cheap, lightweight monitoring devices that can go out to uh, small growers 
that are making them using Arduinos and etc., but also um, making them really nice looking products with 3D printers and etc. So those technologies are coming there. So urban agriculture specifically, the other thing that we're doing here and the thing that I like is the possibility of indoor farming. Um, why do I like that? Because I think that it's uh, an attractive use of technology for young people and I think that um, well, we think that several people around here around the campus think that um, it could be one of these solutions. What I don't like is that one of the things I like about urban agriculture is that this particular type of urban agriculture has the potential to work in cities where you've got large buildings. At the moment, we are this sink for stuff coming in from the outside and the waste largely just is waste and, used and thrown out to sea or wasted in some other ways. Um, a holy grail for me of an urban environment is where we might bring in resources from the outside, but we reutilise those resources once they pass through our body. So um, having in the basement of buildings um, something to recycle the heat out of the waste stream, the nutrients out of the waste stream, the water out of the waste stream, and grow plants and other organisms for, for food um, becomes possible with this technology uh, and in fact it is now happening. The other possibility I think is eventually sprout stack up there on the right hand side. How many minutes have I got to learn? About ten minutes over? One, One minute. Alright. Sprout stack up on the right. That's a lovely new Sydney company that are making hydroponic um, recycling uh, containers into production, hydroponic production. I can see a day when instead of a go-get car there, there'll be a sprout stack there and you'll be able to have um, disseminated um, indoor farms around communities, no problem. The other thing that I think that if we're going to talk about urban food production, I'm, I'm a bit of a technology nerd, I suppose, um, but impossible burgers, so making, substituting meat for... Um, synthesised meat, if you will, um, yeast, yeast producing animal proteins, cultured meat, etc., etc. So, if we're trying to broaden the term of urban agriculture, I think we should broaden it to indoor vertical farming, and perhaps we should broaden it to the idea of producing stuff in cities. But having said that, the most important thing to me is that we do it from a cooperative, collaborative approach. So the technologies are great. For me, what's important is the networking. And this is the last slide. So having said all that, what is it? What I want is for the people, the young people that are coming through our faculty and other young people out there that want to be able to not only eat food that whether they know where it comes from and they know its value in their life, I want the ones that want to be able to to produce that, to be able to do that. How can they do that? For me, it's about networking. For me, it's about them taking not the typical corporate approach. I love the idea of entrepreneurship. That's great. But if entrepreneurship fits back into that model of 
I'm going to beat the competition, then it feeds back into a model that works for the system rather than against the system. And for the system means that we are encouraging that industrial agriculture approach to our food, I think. The collaborative approach, and which is the approach that I know, for example, that Hayden and Erica in the previous slide is collaborating, cooperating. So cooperatives and collaboratives. And as Laura said before, the other thing that I think is important that if we're going to have urban agriculture, that it's not just concentrating on how much can we produce here in the city. Clearly it's not. For me, being someone who's very, very keen on production, 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 um, it's not about that, I understand. I do. Um, it's about greening the cities, it's about the um, community, etc. as I've been told it again and again. Production, production, production. But no, it's about community. And so... Um, what, but if it's, if it's about production, what I don't want to see is displacing the rural communities because the two things that I'm passionate about are young people getting into production and about us strengthening rural communities rather than hollowing them out. So if we start to grow too much food in cities at the expense of rural communities, which is possible in this sort of environment, as, as Alana said before, who knows? What, what's possible with this. But we can't do it so to, to keep hollowing out the rural community. So we have to think about if we want urban production, what we want it for, what's important to us, um, and then to look at it on a holistic level. Let's try and change the food system through urban agriculture, but also through appreciating the communities out there in rural Australia that are doing the things that we really want. That, so regardless of the fact that they might be uh, a thousand miles away or up in Bundaberg, if they're farming using principles that are important to us, then we should be able to eat their produce as well, even if it's coming down. And that truck there is clearly we're going to have solar-powered trucks in anyway, so that'll reduce a bit of the... Um, of the, uh, uh, um, the carbon footprint of the food coming down from, from that beautiful growing regions up around Bundaberg. Um, thank you very much.